This morning, I want to tell a big story. And it's perhaps one of the most important stories we can hear and understand as people of faith. But it's also a long story. We don't often tell big, long stories in church, even though the Bible is full of them. Often, we deal with shorter, more manageable chunks of Scripture. Over a few weeks or months, we might tell a big story, but it's never put all together. And there's reasons for that. Dealing with shorter bursts of Scripture can allow us to really dig into what's going on and the details than telling larger stories in 20 minutes allows. But there's some downsides too. Telling big, long, important stories can really teach us what it looks like to be a person of faith through different seasons of our lives. And that is precisely what this particular story and this particular person is about. Our story this morning is about Joseph, the favorite son of Jacob. Joseph's story is the centerpiece of the last 13 chapters of Genesis. So the first 11 chapters of Genesis are an extended preamble of sorts that talk about how the world was created and how that good creation went from how God intended it to what it is now. You get Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and the Flood, and the Tower of Babel. Then chapter 12 introduces us to Abraham, called Abram then, but we'll just stick with Abraham. And Abraham and his descendants are truly what Genesis is about. God makes a promise to Abraham that he will make of him a great nation. And then we see how Abraham's family grows into this great nation. Abraham has a son, Isaac, and Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob is Joseph's father, and to understand this big story, you have to know a little something about Jacob. Now, I guarantee you at some point I will mix up the names Jacob and Joseph. If I do, just let me know um, all the J names. So Jacob was a cheat. He was a twin, and scripture says that he came out of the womb grabbing his brother's heel. Which is to say that he was almost wrestling and jostling with his brother so that he could be the firstborn. Because the firstborn got everything. But Jacob is secondborn. So he schemes and he cheats his twin brother out of his blessing and his birthright. Because of this, Jacob has to flee, so he goes back to his mom's hometown. And he goes to work for his mom's family. And he makes an arrangement with his uncle. If he works for seven years, he will get to marry Rachel, his uncle's pretty daughter which is also Jacob's cousin, which, gross, but apparently that's how they did it back then, or something. Anyways, Jacob works those seven years and then says, I've worked my time, let me marry Rachel. But on the night of his wedding, Jacob's uncle plays a trick, and it turns out Jacob marries Leah, his uncle's older but not quite as pretty daughter. Jacob is quite upset. The schemer has fallen victim to a scheme himself. But he agrees to work another seven years in order to marry Rachel too. So after a total of 14 years of work, Jacob is finally married to Rachel and Leah. As fate would have it, Leah, the one Jacob didn't want to marry, is the first to conceive and bear him children. She bears him four sons while Rachel cannot conceive. Rachel becomes jealous of her sister, so she tells Jacob to take her servant and bear children through the servant. And Rachel's servant bears Jacob two sons. 
Leah sees this and says, two can play at this game. And she also gives Jacob her servant, and there are two more sons through that servant. And then for good measure, Leah has two more sons after she was supposedly done having children. And then finally, after all this, Rachel herself conceives and bears Jacob a son. And who is Rachel's firstborn son? Joseph. Footnote, Rachel had a second son later on as well, which should make 12 if I told the story correctly. Don't double check my math. So Joseph is the firstborn son of the wife Jacob wanted from the start. And so naturally, he is his father's favorite. He gets all the best things. He never has to wear hand-me-downs. He gets to play on the travel soccer teams, even though the family rule was you couldn't play on travel soccer teams because we couldn't drive that far. But apparently for Joseph, we can drive that far. Am I projecting a little bit? I apologize. Um, but Jacob makes and gives to his son Joseph, to his favorite son, a special coat, a coat of many colors. And his brothers see and notice that Joseph is the favorite. Now, Joseph handled this the way any teenage boy would handle something like this, less than ideally. He lorded his position over his brothers. He had dreams, he had visions of stalks of wheat that corresponded to his brothers bowing down to the stalk of wheat that corresponded to him. And rather than keep this to himself, he was a teenage boy and told his brothers all about this dream. And then he has a dream where the sun and the moon and 11 stars all bow down to him. So not only is Joseph the favorite, not only do his brothers know it, but Joseph brags to his brothers that he is the favorite. So his brothers really hate him. By the way, if you want to open your Bibles, we are, uh, and follow along with me, we are skimming through Genesis chapter 37 now, moving with um, great haste. One day, his brothers decide to kill him, and here's what happens in Genesis chapter 37. But they, the brothers, saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him in one of those cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. 
Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned his son for many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Now I want to pause our story for a minute and ask a question. Why did this bad thing happen to Joseph? I think we can all agree that almost being killed by your brothers only to then be sold into slavery and having your father believe you're dead is a bad thing. So why did this happen? Was it Joseph's fault? I mean, he certainly was not the best, most considerate brother that ever lived. In fact, he was kind of an arrogant jerk. But there are tons of bad brothers in this world who don't get sold into slavery. And there are certainly a ton of arrogant jerks in this world. Most of them get rich. So while he could have been nicer to his brothers, I'm not sure it's fair to say that his behavior warranted what happened to him. Was it his brother's fault? Well, certainly they bear a good bit of guilt. Perhaps a more reasonable response to Joseph's behavior was to have a family meeting, air some grievances, and certainly there are a lot of options between talk it out and kill the guy. <laughs> or even talk it out or sell him into slavery. But at the same time, if Joseph had had a little more humility, or if the family dynamics had been a bit healthier, perhaps it never comes to this. Perhaps there could have been more affection between the brothers and Joseph, or really any affection at all. Was it Jacob's fault? I mean, it can be hard enough living in a big family when you only think your mom and dad have favorites. When it's outright acknowledged, you're just setting your kids up to dislike each other. So could Jacob, the adult in the situation, have been a little bit better of a dad? Or does it go back even further than this? Is it ultimately Jacob's uncle's fault? Were we always headed in this direction after Jacob's uncle tricked Jacob and created a situation where Jacob married sisters? After desiring Rachel, wanting to marry Rachel, and being tricked into marrying Leah, was Jacob always going to favor Rachel's ch children? I'd argue the blame should probably be shared amongst everyone. Perhaps not equally, but there's certainly more than one guilty party in this situation, and no one is completely innocent. Bad stuff happens to us, too. Tragedy strikes us, too. I hope it is never as bad as what Joseph is going through, but we still deal with our share of awfulness. And often we can look at the situation and see how we could have behaved differently, maybe places we could have been better, but we also know that others contributed to our harm. And as people of faith, it can be particularly jarring when, when this happens to us as we believe in a good God who works for us and is with us. How can God be with us when so much bad happens? But back to our story, because Joseph's story isn't over yet. Joseph goes to Egypt and finds himself in the home of Potiphar. And the Bible says that God was with Joseph. Remember this, because it's going to come up again in a moment. And Joseph got into the good graces of Potiphar. 
Potiphar put Joseph in charge of pretty much everything in the house, and Joseph did well. The Bible also tells us that Joseph was a good-looking dude. Interesting detail. And that Potiphar's wife took notice. You can hear the foreshadowing in the Hebrew. She attempted to seduce Joseph, but Joseph refused. He couldn't betray his master like that. And Potiphar's wife kept trying and trying to seduce Joseph, but he refused each time. Then one day, Potiphar's wife again tried to seduce Joseph. But as Joseph was refusing, she took his shirt. And she went to Potiphar with his shirt and framed Joseph for trying to seduce her. Potiphar had Joseph thrown in prison. And again, Scripture says, God was with Joseph. Quick aside for people who think the Bible is a boring book. So far in this story, we've had sister-wife drama, family infighting, a plot to convince a dad his son was dead, and now a straight-from-primetime soap story about attempted adultery. The girl on the train got nothing on this story. Though the girl on the train was pretty good. But in this instance, nothing Joseph could, there's nothing Joseph could have done to stop this. He did everything right. He was a good worker, he respected his master, and Potiphar's wife's evil deeds got Joseph sent from bad to worse. And there might be times in our lives when other people's evils wind up wrecking us. And there's nothing we could have done. There's nothing we could do have done better. There's no more responsible way we could have behaved. And we wonder where God is. I find it so surprising how often in this chapter Scripture says that God was with Joseph. It's almost like the writer is trying to make a point. God can still be with us even when bad things happen. So now I have to really start hustling to get this story over with before lunch gets too cold. So Joseph is stuck in prison and he interprets two people's dreams. And his interpretation comes true one of whom is close to Pharaoh when Pharaoh has a weird dream. So Joseph is called upon to interpret Pharaoh's dream, and he says what Pharaoh's dream means is that there will be a famine, and they need to prepare now to save enough food for when the famine comes. It involves fat cows and skinny cows. You can read about it. So Joseph is called upon to administer, uh, to administer the, the food-saving stockpile program. The famine comes and reaches as far as Jacob and his family. So Jacob sends his sons to Egypt because he hears there is grain there. Why is there grain there? Because of Joseph. His brothers arrive and Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize Joseph. Admittedly, uh, he, he does have a little bit of fun with them uh, when they get there. He messes with them a little bit. I, I, I appreciate that. But eventually what happens is this, and it's the scripture that's printed in your lifeline. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been a famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, 
Lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. Can you imagine Jacob's reaction? The son who was dead is now alive again. Interesting Easter foreshadowing there. But anyways, um, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. As if he would delay coming to see the sun. Right. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds, and all you have, I will provide for you there, because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. And he kissed all of his brothers and wept over them. Afterwards, his brothers talked with him. So Joseph, the favored son who lords it over his brothers, finally shows some humility. He says it was God who brought him down to Egypt. I wonder if he would have said that when he was first sold into slavery. I wonder if he would have said that when Potiphar's wife lied about him and got him thrown in prison. I wonder if he could have said that in the middle of the story. Here's why we ought to tell big stories in church. If we break this up into weekly episodes, yes, we get to focus more on the details. And we do that a lot here, because the details are important. There's a lot of good stuff we had to skip over. But in the, if, we do, if we do that all the time, in the beginning of this story, we might look too much into the family dynamics and miss the storm that's coming. In the middle, we would be wallowing without a ton of faith. And in the end, if we just look at the end, we wind up with this pie-in-the-sky faith that does not stand up to the real tragedies of our lives. In seeing this story as a whole, we can see the faith we are to have is hard-earned. Joseph's faith was not based on everything going his way. It was instead based on knowing that no matter what happened, God would be with him. So you might have noticed in the Washington Post or in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or other media news outlets, uh, yesterday began a international conference of the United Methodist Church. They are gathering to um, talk about and look at the church's stance on issues of LGBTQ inclusion. There are some in the United Methodist Church who feel, who are desiring change in the church's position and practice because they feel that uh, whether they are LGBTQ themselves or whether their family or friends are LGBTQ, that our stance and our practices do not welcome them, do not make them feel like they can be part of the church. And there are some within the United Methodist Church who see the way that culture has moved on social issues and are worried with how quickly the church is trying to keep pace and who want things to remain the same and want us to stand um, for certain truths that for them are not uh, relative. And m many of these articles talk about a near split that might occur over these issues. So there are a bunch of folks in the middle who are saying, why is this the thing we're going to split over? It, are the vital ministries of the United Methodist Church worth sacrificing over this? There's going to be some news coverage. No matter what happens over the next few days, there will be people who will be harmed. There will be people who will be hurt. There will be people who feel like the church is not listening to them and the church is not for them. There will be conceivably a group of winners and conceivably a group of losers. 
when reading this Joseph story, which was in the lectionary, so I picked it, but I didn't pick it. We can see, no matter what happens over the next few days in St. Louis at this conference, God will be with us. We serve a God of the long game. And if God was with Joseph in prison, if at the end of the story God could look and, or Joseph could look and say, God has been with me all along, perhaps that is the faith we are required to have as we face the next few days as a general church. That when we get to the end game, we can see that God was with us all along. Even if now we are standing right in the middle of the story. But it's not just with general church stuff. It's not just with denominational schism. In our own lives, we will experience tragedy, pain, and loss. What it means to be a person of faith is to have a long view of the story. What it means to be a person of faith is to realize that we are in the middle. And the end is assured. God is with us. Which means we will not be overcome. We might not see it in this lifetime. We might not see justice. We might not see vindication. We might not see reconciliation with those people who have harmed us. We might not see God's victory play out in the way we want it, in the timing we want it. But nevertheless, God is with us. On our best day, on our worst day, we proclaim God is with us and have faith that God is ultimately for us. Right at the very end of this story, Joseph is talking to his brothers about all that has happened. And he said, he says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. As people of faith, our hope and our prayer is that things in our life that are meant for evil, God will mean them for good. Let us pray.